Today's scripture can be found in Romans 14, 1 through 12, and is on page 9 in your bulletin. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are, we, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld. For the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while others esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced of his own mind. The one who observes the day observes in the honor of the Lord, and the one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be the Lord's, both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brothers? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each one of us will give an account to himself to God. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Aaron. Okay, uh, kids, I mentioned your Trinity Kids Bulletin earlier. You can grab that now, and here are the three things to listen for. The first uh, is an illustration about late nights. Secondly, uh, I want you to listen for the word vegan. And then uh, thirdly, uh, Hogwarts professor. So late nights, vegan, and Hogwarts professor. So with that, let me, uh, let me pray for us as we look at this passage together. Father, we ask now, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts together would be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Lord, we pray for the gift of your spirit now and that your spirit would work with your word to accomplish what you desire uh, in our midst. Pray, Lord, that you would accomplish what you desire in each of our hearts individually. And Lord, we pray that you would accomplish what you desire in our church as a whole, even as we look to your word together. And Father, we pray above all that uh, we would behold Jesus, that we would see him, that we would love him, that we would worship him. And we pray this all in his name and for his glory. Amen. When, uh, when Jeanette and I were first married, I was, uh, I was talking to an older pastor, and he'd been married for a long time. One of the things that, that he said that he and his wife had committed to from, from the very earliest days of their marriage was to take Paul's words in Ephesians 4 uh, very literally. And, uh, and, and so what Paul says in that chapter is this. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And, uh, and so what they committed to was to never go to, go to sleep while being angry with one another. And what he went on to say right after, though, is that they've had a whole lot of late nights uh, for that reason. And so in some ways, it's like, yeah, it's, he didn't take it completely literally because the sun had definitely gone down while they were still angry, and that, that had happened plenty of times. And I would say, for what it's worth, uh, after 18 years of marriage, I'd say that's a fantastic goal. And at the same time, it's also important to recognize there's a good time just to, every now and again to call a timeout and say, 
we're going to pick this up tomorrow morning uh, because nobody's thinking well when we're exhausted, right? But, but here's the thing that, that I want to think about. That there are times where you might not be angry with your spouse or with a person anymore, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you totally agree, right? You can hit a point with somebody where you say, yeah, we're just going to have to agree to disagree, And that, in certain instances, can be one of the most uncomfortable places to be, especially with people that you love, with people that you are really close to, to say, we are going to fundamentally disagree on this particular issue. And I mention that because that's actually a picture of what Paul's talking about in this passage, although what he's talking about in Romans 14 is not about a disagreement that comes up in a marriage. It's about disagreement that comes up in the church, And so we've talked some about this uh, in previous weeks, but one of the biggest issues in the early church and that you see over and over again in the New Testament is the issue of how Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians related to one another in the church. And a a huge reason for that is because you, you had these massively different cultural backgrounds from which they were coming. And so you had these Jewish believers uh, who had put their faith in Jesus as the Messiah, but but for hundreds of years, going all the way back to the giving of the law at uh, giving of the law to Moses at Sinai, had been practicing uh, these particular Old Testament regulations. Um, They they had to do with dietary laws. They had to do with the observance of special festival days. They had to do uh, with circumcision as well. And and then you have all of these other Gentile Christians who were converted from non-Jewish backgrounds and had no kind of uh, familiarity or experience with those Old Testament practices who, of course, are not doing those things. And and so what what, what happened, uh, as both of these groups put their faith in Jesus, they, they came into this one body together. And you can see it's this recipe from the start for there to be not just the potential for some real disagreement, but for there to be some actual disagreement. And so that's the situation into which Paul is writing here. And his concern is that this divide between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians was gonna divide the church. And so what he does in this passage is he tries to paint a picture of what it looks like for people with these disagreements over these secondary non-essential issues to to not only... uh, Um, uh, tolerate one another or be in the same church as one another but to actually love one another (laughs) and and to love one another in the midst of this very real disagreement and of course uh, it's pretty obvious that these are not the issues that we disagree on today right but we've got all kinds of things that that we could potentially disagree on and, and some things that we actually do disagree on and so the question for us is how can we continue to actually love one another, not merely tolerate one another, but actually love one another in the midst of disagreement? And so Paul's answer to that question is this. It is possible only by embracing the grace and love of Jesus for ourselves and at the same time to recognize that Jesus has extended that same grace and love to one another that he's extended that same grace and love to those even with whom we disagree. And so uh, if you've been with us this fall, this is our our sixth week in the series uh, on Romans 12 to 16, and we've called the series uh, Embodying Gospel Community. And each week we're asking this question, how can we embody the gospel in our life together? 
And so here's how we'll answer it this week. We, we embody the gospel in our life together by loving one another in the midst of disagreement through the grace of Jesus. By loving one another in the midst of disagreement through the grace of Jesus. So uh, three headings this afternoon. The first is this, the reasons for disagreement. And then secondly, the temptations in the midst of disagreement. And then thirdly, the charitable way of disagreement. So first, uh, the reasons for disagreement. So what Paul mentions here are these two issues that that I've already mentioned. The first is this. It's over uh, what Christians should or shouldn't eat. So verse two. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. So that's the first issue. The, the second is over these Jewish festival days and, and whether a Christian uh, should observe those or not. And that's in verse five. One person esteems one day as better than another while another esteems all days alike. Okay, so a little bit of context here as to, to why this would have been such a big deal. So the, the, this question, the, the question is whether New Testament Christians should continue to observe these Jewish dietary laws and these Jewish holy days. And by the way, uh, when you read verse two there, uh, you, you might read that and think like, wait, where in the Old Testament did it say you can only eat vegetables? Right? Where, like, where, where is that? Is this a, uh, uh, was it cool to be vegan uh, early on, <laughs> even in the Old Testament? No, it, that, that's not what's happening. But in the first century Roman world, it was so hard to find meat that was actually kosher that it was far safer just to go ahead and not eat any meat at all and eat only vegetables. And so, so that, that's what a lot of faithful Jewish people did at that time. And so what's happening was that there were these Jews who had put their faith in Jesus as the Messiah and become Christians, and yet were still continuing to observe some of these practices within the church. And again, then you've got all these other Gentile Christians coming into the church, and they weren't practicing any of them at all. And, and, and the, it is important to notice here that in the book of Acts, uh, Paul does agree with, uh, with the, the strong in this case, or the, the Gentile Christians. He recognizes that in the new covenant, they're no longer bound by these Old Testament practices. Uh, Jesus has fulfilled these, these laws, and he goes on to say uh, in the next chapter, in verse 14, that in the Lord Jesus, nothing in, is unclean in itself. So that's Paul's position, but here's the deal. This would have been incredibly difficult for these Jewish believers. And this is important too. It wasn't because they were trying to add something to the work of Jesus. It's not as though they viewed these practices as as earning God's merit or favor or anything like that. They believed that salvation came through faith in the Messiah alone. But this was what life with God looked like to them. It's what they had always practiced. It's what they practiced for these hundreds of years, so much so that it was hard to imagine not observing the Day of Atonement. It was unthinkable for them to, to, to imagine going to the market and eating pork. That was not something that they had a category for. And so what, 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 they, uh, the, what was their case at this point is that they had their, their, their consciences would not allow them to stop doing that. It was unthinkable for them to stop. And so when Paul mentions the, the, the weak in verse 1, he's talking about these Jewish believers. And it wasn't that their commitment to Jesus was weak, nor was it that they had some sort of a weak character or some deficit in character in some way. It was that they were weak in conscience. Their consciences wouldn't allow them to, to, to abstain from these particular practices. And, and, that, and, and it's important here that, to notice that he's talking about a weakness in conscience on secondary, non-essential matters. 
he's not talking about essential things. He's actually just talked about in Romans 1 to 8, this, he's gonna done a deep dive into what those essential matters are, these basics of who Jesus is and what, what he's come to do in and through the gospel. He's super clear that all Christians hold to those essentials. But there are a whole host of these other non-essential secondary matters that there's gonna be differences on. That's what he's talking about here. He's concerned that they would divide over those non-essentials. And so here's the question for us. What are the non-essentials that we're, to, we're tempted to divide over? I have, uh, I've mentioned politics a lot <laughs> in the last few weeks as we've looked at these passages. And, and I, I do so because I think that is one of the big potential points of disagreement that we could face. And we're not done with it yet. We're not through it. So that, that's one thing, but, but it's definitely not the only one. Um, we've been talking a lot uh, as leaders uh, about how we're entering into what is one of, if not the most significant times of change and transition in our seven years as a church. And it's entering into this building, which on the one hand, of course, is incredibly exciting. Like we can't wait to be there, but that is also gonna bring up all sorts of other potential differences of opinion. And some of them could be really small. It could be things like what, what sort of ministry programs we offer or what sort of ministry programs we don't offer. Or how do we use our building? What things uh, look like in the building? That sort of stuff. But there could also be really bigger, uh, bigger things as well. Like questions like this. How do we faithfully love and engage with our LGBTQ neighbors while still holding to a biblically faithful view of gender, of marriage, and of sexuality? That is a really hard question. Or how are we gonna interact with, uh, with our new neighbors where there's so much more socioeconomic diversity? That's gonna change some dynamics within our church. How are we gonna to respond to that? There could be differences of opinion there. Or we could just go uh, back up and just say more generally, how are we gonna interact with people who are different from us? And how might that shape our ministry? Because it has to shape our ministry to some degree. Those are, are really big, difficult, and potentially divisive questions that we're gonna have to face. And so we've gotta hear what Paul's talking about in this passage. So those are the, 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 the potential reasons for disagreement. But then he goes on to talk about though, a couple of p uh, potential temptations in the midst of that disagreement. So secondly, the temptations in the midst of disagreement. He mentions two in particular, and the first is a temptation for the strong, or those, again, those are the Gentile Christians who don't continue to keep these regulations. So look at verse one. As for the one who's weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. And so part of what Paul's saying here is that you're gonna be tempted to look at the weak if you are one who is strong and think, man, how could they think that? How is it possible that they would vote that way? How could they have those views on race and racism? How could they think that way about the vaccine? And you can go on and on with that. And so the temptation then is to see that and then to think, I wanna do all that I can to argue that person out of her position. I wanna do everything that I can to show that they are wrong on this. And, and, and just to be clear, what Paul's talking about here isn't, uh, he's not saying don't have real substantial conversations about these things. He's not saying don't have healthy conversation and dialogue. What he's saying 
is that he's talking about welcoming someone in, not because you love that person, but because you want to show them they're wrong. And he goes on to then combine this temptation with one he mentions in verse 3, which he says is to despise the weaker brother. And it's not at all hard to see how this could happen. Because if you, if you think about it, in this case, the strong are actually correct. They share Paul's perspective on this issue. And, and, and so the temptation is to either try to do all that you can to argue these weak people out of their position, or if that doesn't work and they don't respond to your argument, is to despise them, to dismiss them, to write them off, to look down on them, and to think less of them. And, and one of the things that, uh, that struck me this week that I hadn't really thought of uh, as specifically in this passage is that Paul, an apostle, right, who pretty much knows what he's talking about on these things, was actually content to have these people disagree with him and, di- and differ with him on this point in the church. And you think, like, if anybody had license to quarrel, it would be Paul. And yet that's not what he does. He calls us instead not to quarrel or despise those with whom we disagree. One, one last note on this before we look at the next temptation. Um, I think one of the, um, the interesting, and I would even say disturbing things about this temptation, and, and this is one thing I think we need to be aware of, is that most of the time for us, the, the context for that quarreling and the context for that despising is gonna be online. Uh, it, it's amazing the sorts of things that we are comfortable posting online or typing online that we would never say to a person's face. And so I I just mentioned that in the context of this temptation because that's something where you might see this show up in your own life, the temptation to quarrel and to despise. So that's uh, that's the first temptation we've gotta be on guard against. The second temptation is for the weak and it's for a little different, it's a little different. If you look back to the second half of verse three, Paul says this, let not the one who abstains, that's the one who, um, uh, who, who believes you need to continue to practice these things, let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. And, and when Paul says don't pass judgment, he's not talking here about sort of a, a judgment of evaluation. The kind of judgment that he has in mind here is, is, is the passing judgment of condemnation. It's a judgment of condemnation. And so, uh, again, this would make a whole lot of sense if you think about this. These Jewish Christians see that these Gentile Christians are eating anything they want. And they're not observing, uh, they're treating all days alike. And it is unthinkable to them. To the point where they begin thinking like, I can't understand how any faithful Christian would do what these people are doing. And you can see how easily you could go from, from that place, that kind of thinking, to then actually condemning that person in your heart. And then maybe even outwardly, you start distrusting them. And eventually, you might just d- dismiss them completely. And, and, and what you can see in both of these temptations is that, the, that uh, caving to either of those is going to lead to some kind of division. And it could lead to some kind of separation as well. And the reason for that is because uh, in a lot of ways, that's way easier. It's a whole lot easier to be with people that you agree with, to be with people who hold the same political views that you do, to be with people that hold the same views on race and racism that you do, 
to be with the, the, the people who think about ministry and, and how ministry should look in the exact same way that you do. Here's the thing though, that's not what Paul calls us to do. He doesn't call us to keep whittling down and get smaller and smaller until you can agree with every single person that's with you in the church. That would get down to one person, by the way. Not a church anymore, right? What he does in this passage is offer a better way, and it really is a better way. So thirdly, and finally, the charitable way of disagreement. So this is the question for us. How in the world are we supposed to do this? This is incredibly difficult to, to talk about actually loving each other and staying in relationship with one another while we disagree on things that we're really passionate about and that we really do believe matter to some degree. Well, uh, Paul gives us four things we need to remember here. And I wanna give credit to John Stott for parts of this basic outline that were helpful to me. Uh, but here's the first thing uh, that we've gotta remember. We've got to remember that God has welcomed the one with whom we have disagreement. God has welcomed that person. So in verse one, Paul says, you're to welcome the one with whom you disagree. Now why? Skip down to verse three. He says, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. So this is a huge statement that Paul's making. He's saying that that person that, that you disagree with That one that that, that you are so tempted to despise or to judge or to dismiss because of their views is one that your God has welcomed. And this can lead to some pretty uncomfortable results, right? If you you play this through. Like, you you think about this. Do you really want to refuse to welcome this person that God has welcomed? That's not a position that, that, that we want to be in. And so Paul actually takes it a step further in the next section uh, that we'll look at next week. And he says that that this is a brother uh, for whom Christ died. This is a brother for whom Christ died. So think about this. Next time you're on social media, maybe next time you're just in a disagreement with somebody, you see a post from another Christian, um, I want you to think about this. What difference would it make for you to stop in that moment and to consciously remember that God has welcomed him? God has welcomed this specific person. Jesus, my savior, is his savior as well. And I think for us to stop and consciously make the effort to think that way and remember that could actually begin to change our hearts. And it's not gonna happen immediately, but, but it's, gonna, it's gonna begin us down this pathway to actually beginning to love those with whom we disagree. So that's the first thing to remember, is to remember that God has welcomed them. Here's the second. It's by remembering that Jesus is Lord and you aren't. (laughs) That Jesus is Lord and you aren't. And so uh, what Paul does is uh, he uses this illustration of a master and a servant in verse four. So he says this. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It's before his own master that he stands or falls. And so where Paul is going with this is he's making this point that Jesus is our Lord and master. He, he's my Lord and he is the Lord of the person that I disagree with. And so what he does here is he takes that basic truth that Jesus is Lord and he works it out in a couple of ways. One is this, if Jesus is our master, then our entire lives, are, we owe our entire lives to him. All of life is lived before him. And so here's where he goes with this. He's saying both the strong and the weak are doing what they're doing 
and holding the particular positions that they're holding in honor of the Lord. Both of them are doing that. And both are able to give thanks to the Lord for the positions that they hold and for the, the, um, the practices that they're engaging in. So part of what he's doing here is he's getting at the motive of each. And I think this is really helpful for us to remember because there's this temptation oftentimes to think, I know why this person doesn't agree with me. It's because they don't have all the info. She hasn't thought it all the way through, right? And so what I need to do is I need to sort of back up this dump truck of info and I need to unload it on her because then she's finally gonna come to see that she's wrong and I'm right, right? But, but, but what Paul says here is that what we need to see is that you can disagree with another person, another brother and sister in Christ, and each are still living their lives before the Lord. They're doing what they're doing to honor the Lord and to give thanks to him. So that's part of what we need to see, but, but this also comes as a real call to us as well. Um, it, it comes as a call to us when we start thinking about how we come to the conclusions that we come to in our own positions. So verse five, Paul says this, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. And what he's not saying there is that you need to be 100% certain of every position that you hold all the time. That's not what he's saying. But what he is saying here, his point is that each of us needs to work out these questions before the Lord and with his word. And you need to extend that same kind of charity to your brothers and sisters as well. So that's the second way, the thing we need to remember, that Jesus is Lord, we aren't. Here's the third, it's by remembering that we're family. By remembering that we're family. So verse 10, Paul takes up this language of family. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? One of the easiest things for us to forget when we are in a heated disagreement with somebody is that this person is family. That you belong to one another that you have the same father, that you've been brought into the very same family. And here's the deal as well. Families can disagree with each other and they're still family at the end of the day. And, and I really think like one of Satan's greatest strategies, and I don't wanna make these big pronouncements, but I think part of what's going on in all the division in churches all over the place right now has to do with this very point. It's, it's trying to get us to forget that this is true. That people that I disagree so much with on, on particular issues, it, it, it's, it's tempting to think they aren't just wrong, it, that they actually are doing something really bad. And to slowly move them into the category of evil and enemy rather than family. And, and, and that is toxic to the church. It will divide the church. And so part of what Paul is saying here is that you've got to remember this is your brother, that this is your sister, we are family. You've got to remember that. So that's the third thing. Fourthly and finally, it's by remembering that, that, we, that we'll all stand before the true judge, that we'll all stand before the true judge. So if you look back at the middle of verse 10, it says this, for we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. And then he quotes, that, uh, quotes from Isaiah 45 to show that, that God is the judge of the whole world. And then verse 12, so then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Now, I, I think there can be a temptation uh, when we come to these last three verses to, to hear those verses and then to take them in a couple of really incorrect, wrong directions. Um, and, and, and one of them is this. I think it, you hear this word about Jesus as judge and it strikes some real fear in your heart. 
Because what you think about is, well, hold on a second. Like, I thought we believed in grace. Like, what, what I, I'm reading here sounds like I'm going to be judged on the basis of my works before God. And if that's the case, then that really is terrifying. But, but here's the deal. That's not what Paul's saying here. What Paul has already told us in Romans 8, that if you are in Christ, if you have put your faith in him, there is therefore now no condemnation for you. Your standing before the Father is 100% secure because your standing is in Jesus himself. So that's not what he's getting at uh, with these words about judgment. Here's another wrong direction that we could take. And it's to think this, right, okay, so I hear what you're saying about Jesus as judge, so all I need to do is just wait it out with these people that I disagree with because Jesus is gonna show them what's up in the end. Like, he's gonna judge them in the end, so I don't have to, right? And that's not what he's saying either. I think what, what, what Paul's doing here is reorienting our focus. Because here's what can happen. When you start seriously disagreeing with someone, it's so easy to get wrapped up in what the other person thinks that you start to lose sight of this truth that you are the one who are accountable before God. That that's your primary concern is your relationship to the, to the Father because each one of us is gonna stand before him. He's the one to whom we're gonna give an account. And, and here's part of what that does for us. It reminds us that we're to work out our position on these particular questions before the Lord and not to try to do that for my brothers and sisters. And in, in some ways, it reminds me that, that God has called me to be responsible for me in that sense. And, and, and I need to orient myself to him, and I also need to allow my brothers and sisters to do the same. So those are the, the, the four things that we've gotta remember, I think, to, to actually love one another in the midst of this kind of disagreement. But here's the thing, there's actually something that, that is beneath all of these four reasons that I think is even more important, or more foundational at least, and it's this. It's remembering that God has welcomed you in Christ. That he is your true Lord because he loves you. That, that, that he's made you a part of his family, and that your standing before him is not based on having all of the right opinions and perspectives on all of these secondary non-essential issues. It's, it's based on the grace that he has extended to you through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so here's the thing. As you, as you more and more know and believe and experience that grace and love that God has for you in Jesus, you'll actually become the kind of person who can genuinely love those brothers and sisters with whom you disagree. Not merely tolerate, but genuinely love. And Part of what's beautiful about this too is that as we begin to do that, it really does put on display to our neighbors that Jesus really is Lord and that the gospel really is true because that's the only way something like this would be possible. So let me close with this. Um, there's a, a fairly well-known quote. It's been attributed to a, uh, to a lot of different people in church history. Just this week though, I, I found, uh, I learned its actual source. It's on the front inside cover of your bulletin. I'd love for you to take a look at it as we wrap up. It's that top quote, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. It's a quote by Rupertus Melendius. And so I sent that quote to Courtney this week and she said, it sounds like a spell from Harry Potter or like a, a professor at Hogwarts or something. 
But uh, Melendius was a, uh, he was a 17th century German Lutheran pastor, and he was writing this uh, in the midst of the, the 30 years war. And so there, there's all kinds of very real strife, and, and uh, there were elements of religion that were a huge part of that war as well. And this is the advice that he gave his church. And I think it's a, a beautiful statement of what it can look like for us to approach differences and continue to love one another in the midst of those disagreements. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. Let me pray that God would do that in us by his spirit. Father, we thank you uh, that you are our creator, our sustainer. We thank you that you are our redeemer. We thank you for your son, who is the one who has died, who has risen for us, who has ascended to your right hand, and who is Lord of all now. So Lord, we thank you that we can entrust ourselves to him, that he is the one who rules and reigns over all. And so Father, we pray that by your grace, you would enable us to be a, con a congregation that, that really does love one another, even in the midst of disagreement. You would enable us to remain unified on the essentials, to extend charity to one another on all other matters. We pray for the grace of your spirit in that. We ask it all in Christ's name, amen.